PGCE Research Bites, student teacher research from the team behind Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. Hi Joe, how are you doing? Nice to see you. I'm good, thank you. Um, Good, thanks. Yeah, I just wanted you to talk us through um, your last assignment. So could you talk us through your title and, and what inspired you around that focus? Oh, my title, that's a good question. Um, so I, I think it was along the lines of how can scaffolding or what part does what part does scaffolding have to play in the new curriculum for Wales this year? And in terms of what, what scaffolding is, well, I, I didn't really know. So um, I know definitely coming into this course, I thought scaffolding was anything where you're supporting a people with any work, whether that's just going over, making sure they're okay, or answering any questions. To me, that was scaffolding, that was how deep it went. And um, it was only really my second placement then when I realised scaffolding's a lot, lot more. It needs to be a little less reactive. Well, it's still, you still need that reactive side of it. You still need those soft scaffolds, but you also need some hard scaffolding as well. So that's that was kind of what I wanted to look at and tackle in my literature review. Brilliant. So. Um you, you, you turned to the literature to sort of underpin some of the things that you were doing in practice. So when you sort of shifted from CP1 to CP2, you noticed sort of like there were areas you wanted to develop. So you went to the literature. Could you talk to us a little bit about that literature and, and how you found it? And, and, and I suppose what links you made to your practice? Yeah, so I think um, with scaffolding, because it is, it's become a little bit of a blur, I think, over time. When it was first developed around, oh, right my brain now, 1986? I'll go for 1986. So it was Bruno Wood and Ross, they kind of came up with it as an interaction between a tutor, so someone more knowledgeable, and then a novice. Um, so it's sort of just those interactions, the ongoing building, but like helping the people reach their full potential. That was the basis of it there. But I think, as I'd said there, it kind of has become a little bit more about anything where you're supporting another pupil. But when they define it, they define it as it has six functions. So you've got recruitment, so you actually need to get the child's interest in the first place. You've got Reducing the degrees of freedom, that's really, when you're looking at hard scaffolds, you kind of try to make it so there's less places where people can make a mistake. And that was one of the main focuses of my assignment, I think. We have direction maintenance, so making sure people are still staying on task, marking critical features. So sort of along the lines of assessment for learning then, as, as I've seen in practice, I've used AFL quite a lot. And then having, that is definitely forms a, a massive part of scaffolding as I came to find from this assignment. And then, where are we then? We've got frustration control. So obviously it's, it's quite an emotional procedure. And I think that's where it fits in so well with the curriculum for Wales is it's a lot to do with people confidence. And it's all about building that confidence. And one way we can do that is helping people accomplish something they're not quite ready to achieve yet. And that ties in really nicely with Vygotsky's work of the zone of proximal development. So that's the idea of there's a zone, sort of like a Goldilocks zone where people's, it's a challenge but it's doable for them with a little bit of support, a little bit of scaffolding, as it were. Um, if it's too easy, people might get bored. If it's too hard, they'll just give up. So it's just finding that balance and scaffolding really contributes to that. No, that's great. And how did that sort of like literature review sort of prompt your thinking about your intervention? So I think the main finding for me was that scaffolding is a lot more, you can plan it a lot more than I'd been used to. Um, and it definitely had been something I discussed with my mentor over time was things like, Different, I thought differentiation, I put challenge questions in, that's what I was used to doing. So in that sense, differentiation by outcome was one of the things I found. So there's different ways you can differentiate by outcome, by resource. So you, literacy, for example, you could get some people's writing a letter, whereas the less able people's with literacy could draw a comic strip or something. So my findings were looking at resource by task then specifically. I came across a few articles speaking of tiered worksheets and they definitely resonated with me in the sense that you can give different worksheets to different pupils, which is something I'd heard of before, 
but had not really known a way to implement it without making people feel a little bit less confident. If, I don't know whether it's a little bit embarrassing at times when you're giving some people's a harder worksheet and then the person next door to them could have a much easier worksheet to compare and it's like, oh, that's different, that's much easier. So yeah, I think that that's the thing that stopped me before, but I'd come across a way of doing it that was less embarrassing. So if you sort of do an AFL question or a hinge question, as I'd been used to doing in my placement, then you can assign the worksheets based on that. So it's less about pupil ability that you might preempt a little bit and more about just how capable are the people with this very task, the thing they're going to be doing more of. So less putting them into categories, I suppose. So before you implemented it, did you talk to your mentor? How, how did that look in practice? So yeah, I think um, the, it initially came from one of my observed lessons where it had come up that a differentiated worksheet really would have fit in really, really well. And I'd spoken to my mentor about it because I was doing a the SALT topic in chemistry applied science with year nine lower ability class, which was which is quite a difficult topic and I underestimated just how much there was to learn. So over time I've been building up skills and I turned to my mentor and asked, like, how how am I going to put it all all in place? Because there's so many things in the spec that they need to be able to just integrate. It's not all separate at all. Um, so we looked at the idea of differentiated worksheets and yeah, it kind of I did a few book looks to try and find out where people struggle in particular so that I could then implement that in the worksheets and just maybe add some fill in the blanks questions or follow them through the steps a bit more explicitly than I was used to. So actually, so this started with the learners, you went to the literature, you returned back to the learners, you had the, those dialogues with your mentors and the, the team within the school, and that sort of helped sort of percolate your thinking around your your development of your focus and your, your title, but also then what, what you're going to put into place for your intervention. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. I think. Um, just everything, everything I was used to, using all my experiences that I've had and knowing that class as well as I did because I, I started the intervention quite late into my um, clinical practice too. So I, I got to know my learners really, really well. I'd, I'd seen them, I'd seen them get frustrated. I'd seen them ask loads and loads of questions regarding certain topics. So I knew where most of them were capable, what most of them were capable of before, before planning the intervention in the first place. And what was the impact? What, what were the findings? What did you discover? Okay, so the way I did it was I sort of did a bit of a, a control lesson where I had one worksheet where I modelled everything. So the success criteria were there. I showed, them the pupils, showed, yeah, showed the pupils how to follow that in, in accordance with Rosenshine's principles. So I thought providing the model so that pupils knew exactly what they needed to achieve. And then because I only had a 50 minute lesson, then I included two or three questions. So including that hinge question where I could assess and in the first lesson I did it, I used the hinge question just to highlight any misconceptions that I could then address. And then they had one, just one question that everyone would attempt along with the challenge question. And that had its merits. The, the modeling was effective. People seemed to get it there. And when I was doing it with the class, we were doing a worked example or we do, they seemed to know what they were talking about. But the second I backed off, it became pretty clear that the people were still really unsure. And I left them to their own devices to just follow it pretty quickly. So I think they needed a little, well, a few less degrees of freedom, as Brunewood and Ross would have said, to get started. So that's what I did then from the second lesson. I took those worksheets and I had a basic one, which had a few fill in the blanks and one or two steps might have been done for them already. I broke it down into a step-by-step -step guide so they could actually follow that. I, kept, I left them with that and some of the information they'd need in tables. So again, reducing the degrees of freedom and such. So they had that basic worksheet and then if they used that hinge question, so I used that hinge question there again. And if they got the hinge question wrong, then I'd give them the first worksheet. If they got it right, I'd move them on to a second, slightly harder one. 
And then those who finish that then would move on to an extension question, extension worksheet with even harder, like the higher order thinker, which is probably beyond the spec of what was expected of them. And uh, did you ask people their thoughts on this process? I didn't, no, I didn't do that. I, I think the, the way I assessed the progress really was obviously I could tell around the class how well they were getting on with it. I noticed there was a lot less questions and my mentor picked up on that as well. Behaviour-wise, people were a lot better. And then I think the main thing I was looking at was pupil progress in comparison to the first lesson where we had one pupil answer the question correctly and then move on to the challenge question, but didn't quite get that. So there was no way of telling oh, how well do these pupils actually know the work at all. Um, there wasn't enough independent practice. And then I use some more independent practice. I'd live mark quite a lot of the work and then I'd come back to it at the end with exit tickets. So I'd ask them something like they might see in an exam, like past paper question, for example. And I used that to assess. So I found that two out of my five pupils answered the hinge question correctly. And then when it came to the exit tickets, four of them answered it correctly. And one was really, really close. So not quite 100%, but it was definitely progress was, was visible. And in all the other aspects, like I said, behavior, questioning, Great. And just thinking about like the takeaway from that, I mean, the thinking around that, what will you take forward now with your, with your practice uh, in other schools? Is it something you can perhaps transfer or is it something that sort of like prompted you to think about something else? Yeah, definitely. So I actually, I've been trying, I tried it out a couple of times since then. So I've, b before it was differentiating by outcome, it was challenge questions. But now I've tried differentiation by task again. I've done those differentiated worksheets for another observed lesson and it went swimmingly, it really did. So it's definitely something I'll keep in my practice. And I think in terms of just knowing more what scaffolding is about, knowing that I can plan some scaffolds, I can have, say, just even vocabulary lists or something simple, just for people to refer to, to make, just to make them focus a little bit more on the thing I'm actually assessing. That's definitely something I took away. And in terms of building confidence and making people feel like healthy, confident individuals, I think scaffolding is just a really key, key aspect of that in building that self self-actualization. So I suppose reflecting on that, is there anything if you to go back? Is there anything you develop or change? So I think one thing I could have done was there were still people that struggled with the first questions or so on, the, even the, the first worksheet. And I think if maybe they, like the steps were explicit, if I just laid it out in, in the format of the steps rather than tackling whole questions at once, there was that. But yeah, in terms of that, I think, I think it did go pretty well. Um, one thing I did notice that perhaps I should have done weeks before was I needed to stop the lesson in between and look at balancing equations again because it seemed like a lot of people were having difficulty with that but the beauty of that was that having that hinge question there or doing the we do examples I could tell people were a lot weaker on that so I tried to give them a little method on that they weren't the strongest still still needed help with that more than anything but I think I managed to predict where most difficulties were going to come from pretty well that's great <laughs> And so thinking about so that, that process of research and inquiry that you went through, have you got any recommendations for others that will be going through that you know, next? Yeah, well, it's 100% made me a much better teacher than, than I would be. Um, I've, it's always been a part of my practice. I've always thought anytime something's gone wrong, I was like, well, why has that gone wrong? Conversations with mentors or doing a little bit of reading. I've read a few teaching secondary science books. And one that was really, really good was Teaching Walkthroughs by Tom Sherrington. Um, so you can actually... I used that a little bit for the assignment was to just if there's something you feel needs developing refer to that book and it'll give you a, like a five-step guide what to do and how to how to make that better so just practice makes perfect there and yet there's so many so many things available so many things out there if there's an area of your practice that you and your mentor might have identified needs a little bit of strengthening then yeah get on it 
Great, and thinking about, that, thinking about that process, that research inquiry process in total across the entire year, is there one or two top tips that you would sort of like share? <laughs> I think, yeah, reflect on everything. Just use all the sources around you because your mentors will have, the mentors or the members of staff in the department will have so much knowledge on, on what to do there. Um, use the reflections on the PLP. Um, I probably didn't do enough still. I'm guilty of that, but I think be, reflecting on your practice is a massive part of teaching. It, it's never going to stop. You're never going to be perfect. So just yeah, read when you can. Ask ask everyone around you. Ask your PGC colleagues. And ask, could ask you, I suppose. Yep, that collaboration is, 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 is key, isn't it? Utilising all the relevant people around you yeah. to have those reflective dialogues. Absolutely. Joseph, thank you so much for sharing this with us today. Thank you. (laughs) PGCE Research Bites comes from the team behind Emma and Tom Talk Teaching and is presented this week by Dr. James Snook. It showcases the best student-teacher research from the Cardiff Partnership for Initial Teacher Education. Thanks to Joseph Thomas from PGCE Secondary Biology with Science who joined us today to share his research. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We'll be back with a regular episode next week and PGCE Research Bites will be back soon. 